Was Mike Johnson on your bingo card? I don't think he was on anyone's bingo card. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Susan, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. It's great to be with you and our guest today I'm especially thrilled to be on with. Our special guest making her roundup debut, the one and only Caddy Kay. Caddy is a veteran of BBC reporting across the globe. She reports on economic and political news across the U.S. and appears frequently on NBC's Meet the Press and Morning Joe on MSNBC. She has covered four presidential elections, the wars in Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. She was on the ground at the Pentagon nearly 20 minutes after it was attacked on September 11th. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, along with her co-author, Claire Shipman. In July, Caddy and I spoke about their new book, The Power Code, More Joy, Less Ego, Maximum Impact for Women and Everyone. It was a great conversation. Caddy, it's a pleasure. Welcome back to Politicology. Ron, it's great to be back with you. And of course, with Susan. Anytime Susan asks, I say yes. Up first this week, there is a new Speaker of the House. We'll discuss Mike Johnson's election as Speaker, what it means for the debt and appropriations, including funding for the wars in Israel and Ukraine, and how it could shape the 2024 election. Next, as the Israel-Hamas war nears its third week, we'll discuss Qatar's role as an intermediary in hostage negotiations, a financial backer of Hamas, and a major ally of the United States. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at some startling polling numbers showing an erosion of support for democracy and an increasing willingness to resort to political violence. To get ad-free access to this show and that segment, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com plus or click the link in your show notes today. I, I, I just knew in that moment that my, my, my dad, my father would be would be proud of me, and I felt that he was. And, and I think all of our parents are proud of what we're called to do here. I think all the American people at one time had great pride in this institution, but right now, um, that's in jeopardy. And we have a challenge before us right now to rebuild and restore that trust. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the voice of America's 56th Speaker of the House. After 22 days of chaos, the House of Representatives now has a speaker. Republicans elected little-known Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, who was unanimously elected by every Republican who is in the House. Uh, if you're wondering who Mike Johnson is, you're not alone. Before the floor vote, uh, when Maine Senator Susan Collins was asked about what it would be like to work with Johnson on spending issues, she delivered perhaps the ultimate burn when she told reporters she would need to Google him because she didn't know him. Schumer had not met him. McConnell had not met him. Uh, Johnson was first elected in 2016 and has served as vice chairman of the House Republican Conference and GOP deputy whip. He also chaired the Conservative Republican Study Committee and sat on the Judiciary Committee. But probably the most important thing politicology listeners need to know about Johnson is that he voted against certifying the 2020 election. When Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado was asked whether Johnson thinks President Biden won the 2020 election, Buck said, I have not gotten that promise from Mike. I hope he comes around to that point. But then a reporter asked Johnson on Tuesday about his work to overturn the 2020 election, and he ignored the question. Johnson gave a 15-minute address from the rostrum immediately after winning the speakership. And as I watched it, I jotted down a few things that jumped out to me. The very first thing he did was extend his thanks to Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries and committed to finding common ground. Most of what he said in this initial speech received standing ovation, uh, broad applause from both sides. Uh, but there were two lines where Democrats did not applaud. One was about tackling the debt crisis and reducing inflation. And the other was that he wanted his speakership to be known for decentralizing the power of his office. And aside from a few moments with religious language I didn't like very much, uh, as strange as this is to say, Susan... <laughs> Uh, there was very little <laughs> in the content of his introductory speech I could find fault with, and, and candidly, plenty I was glad to hear. So 
I was uh, I was thinking we could start with your general reactions, um, how you are thinking about Johnson of all people winning this fight, uh, the fact that the United States now has uh, an election denier as the Speaker of the House, and about the substance of his introductory speech, which was I think intended to signal his priorities. Uh, Caddy, do you want to lead off with your thoughts? Look, I think it's good for America um, in a time of global crisis, and we'll talk about some of that later, that there is a speaker at all, right? I mean, the the kind of dysfunction we've seen over the last three weeks does nothing for America's leadership in the world. Um, I did a kind of quick, quick sweep of how it was being covered over the last couple of days in international media, and it went from the German Der Spiegel calling it a threat to America's national security, to the Iranian press saying that America is cursed, America's political system is cursed. Look, the, not having a speaker was a victory for China and and Iran and North Korea and Russia, um, and they made little took little pains to show that they were excited about what was happening here. Um, Johnson himself, I'm I'm. Thank God for Susan Collins being honest because it allows me, gives me the cover to be honest too. I had to Google who he was. Uh, he's not somebody who's known since we've now all done our very quick research and become instant experts on Mike Johnson. And perhaps the good voters of Louisiana knew who he was, but the rest of us probably didn't. Um, the best description I've heard of him is Mike Pence on decaf and that he's a kind of <laughs> mild-mannered, but, um, and as you said about his his 15-minute speech when he took over, it was unobjectionable, which I think is the way he comes across. Now, there's plenty that, and we can talk about that, there's pre- plenty that progressives and Democrats are not going to like at all about uh, Mike Johnson, his positions on abortion, his position on his positions on gay rights, his position, as you said, um, on debt and spending issues. Um, but, and can he do any better job than McCarthy did? Um, can he have any more success in running that raucous Republican Party in the House of Representatives than McCarthy did? Maybe because there may be some desire amongst Republicans, which is what the unanimity of the vote suggests, just to have somebody there and to have some sense of stability heading into the next election. Um, I think there's a realization that while we may all forget this, you know, our memories are short and I doubt very much this is going to factor enormously in the next election. Continued chaos in the Republican Party in Congress may have done, um, particularly for individual members. Yeah, there there certainly has been uh, reporting that many of the people who are unhappy with McCarthy um, feel like at least Johnson is an ally in their ideological cause. And so he may get more goodwill from them uh, and less less friction than than McCarthy did. Uh, Susan, you are um, perhaps most famous on politicology for your um, predictive powers. Uh, every time you bring a look ahead, they tend to come true. My question first is: Was Mike Johnson on your bingo card? He certainly was not, but I don't think he was on anyone's bingo card. And I would go further than not just saying that Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell don't really know him. I don't think half of the conference knew much about him before a couple of days ago. So the new speaker comes in and it's an interesting time. And I'm going to try to be positive. As you know, Ron and Caddy, I sometimes like to go on the the hopeful side of things, rose-colored glasses. And that is because of what Speaker Johnson said in that first 15-minute speech. It seems... Like he may be focused on governing, which would be great. And he has an immediate problem to face head on, which is November 17th and a possible government shutdown. And I think he may have enough good faith on both sides. He has the good faith with Democrats to maybe do something to get Democratic votes and that the Republicans will allow him to use Democratic votes to avoid a shutdown. Now, there's also just, again, on the governance side that things are going to be very interesting to see who his, what his staff looks like. He has like eight people and like half of them came on in 2023. So he has to build out a staff. Will he keep some of the more institutional-like staffers? He has to build a political operation because he's speaker and is responsible for basically getting the next, keeping the House Republican in 2024, which 
will be a different political problem. Um, and looking, you know, I just actually, one thing before we got to the speaker I wanted to mention because it falls right into the power code of Caddy K is that there were no women who were running <laughs> for speaker. Now, what the reason why I want to focus on this with Caddy is Ali Vitali from NBC News said, that's probably because the women are too smart to take the job because it's such a thankful and horrible job, <laughs> which I actually think is kind of interesting when you look at that, really no woman decided to come forward. So, and that kind of makes me pivot into the political operation. 2024 is right around the corner and having a staunch social conservative like Speaker Johnson out there is certainly someone who could be vilified in, in swing districts for those, especially 17 Republicans that were elected in Biden districts. But I wonder if McCarthy may have done Johnson a huge favor by getting some of the votes on, on abortion and other social issues already off the table. So he can focus on governance and keeping the government open and some other things like, I don't know, funding two wars and, and having to be caught up to date just on the security aspect of our country. What he doesn't know, and it's not his fault he doesn't know it. I don't put it on him. It's just something he hasn't been deeply part of and he's not, he hasn't been part of leadership before. So he's got to develop a leadership style. Will Scalise be next to him? holding him, you know, a big factor in, in influencing his decisions. So I would like to give him the, the opportunity to show he can govern, and maybe he can, and that would be great, at least for the next, what, we have three weeks until we hit November 17th. If he could get that done, that would be a major coup. But I will say this, the whole overall process, I think, destroyed Republicans for 2024. Because if there is a shutdown, there is no way anyone can think that the Republicans should ever govern ever again. <laughs> can I ask you just one quick follow-up on the political piece of this? And then we'll turn to the the pressing legislative business, including the potential shutdown. What does one give up to become speaker? What does it cost you? to become speaker. And I wonder if that may factor into, for, for, for example, why Elise Stefanik decided to steer very clear of this, um, this contest. Okay. Well, what, ironically, what they had to give up, um, Kevin McCarthy already did all the deal making there could be. So there were like literally no more deals to be made. So as far as giving up your principles, like, you know, and I would argue like, did, you know, Jim Jordan lacks many. Um, at least Mike Johnson said like, okay, fine, you guys, you need somebody and I'm here and I'm a, not only my blank slate, you know exactly where I stand. So he actually, the only thing he's probably not aware of that he's really giving up is his privacy. Um, the spotlight is going to be tremendous. He's never been under this kind of microscope before he, since he hasn't worked his way through leadership. And, and chair, he's never even chaired a committee before. So this is going to be a huge challenge. Now, as far as maybe why others, especially Elise Stefanik, I think that right now people said, this is a losing proposition for me. Do I even last a year? Do, do I want the job and be, frankly, I believe responsible for losing the Republican majority <laughs> in 2024? which is a good possibility. So what she would give up is if she took the job and didn't knock it out of the ballpark, she never has a chance at the job again. And I think that's what helped people. Caddy? I mean, I think what you just said there, Susan, about him and how he handles the spotlight and pressure is super important. I mean, it's so rare to have somebody catapulted Almost in any organization, whether it was a corporation or Congress or almost anything else, the military, um, politics, you name it, into a position of um, uh, high pressure, high exposure, high scrutiny, um, high personal, te in, you know, 
the, the intensity of being speaker and suddenly literally to the point of, you know, being now having a large amount of security, going everywhere in, in SUVs with kind of armed marshals around you. He has no exposure to that. It, it's not even clear from the White House whether Joe Biden had ever met him before. I mean, that's how unknown this guy is. The White House couldn't even really answer that question about whether Biden even knew who this guy was. And he's going to have to deal with Biden on incredibly important issues going forward. How does he handle that? We have no idea. We, we don't know whether he's up to it. We don't know how he's going to handle the pressure. Maybe because he seems to be a fairly calm, affable guy and he can build a team around him. And he has perhaps the mannerism of being able to reach out to people on the other side, although they are going hard and fast um, in opposition to him on his on his political stances on abortion, on the election. Um, so whether he's going to get much leeway there, I don't know. I, I don't think there's much much desire on the Democrat side to give him any benefit of the doubt. But how he handles the pressure, I think, is a really good question, and we just don't know. And that's very rare in that position. Now that there is a speaker, the House can return to business. And there are obviously several major issues. We've talked about them uh, that they're going to need to tackle, providing funding and support to Ukraine and Israel, passing appropriations bills, or a continuing resolution, which listeners will now know is, is just a kick the can down the road at current spending levels before the November 17th deadline. The House uh, at the moment has only passed four of the 12 appropriations bills they need to pass every year. And in a Dear Colleague letter dated on Monday, Johnson wrote that he's willing to move a continuing resolution to pass one in order to avoid a shutdown. Um, and in this proposal, there's there's two pieces here. And I, this is important because it will remind everyone about um, what this fight was about, or a big portion of what this fight was about in the first place. There's a substance issue and a process issue here. The substance of his proposal will include a play to reduce the debt. And that was uh, that was sort of top of mind for the eight Republicans who pushed to oust McCarthy. And then there's the procedural, the rules problem. Um, you'll recall that on the House floor, as Matt Gates over and over and over again defended his his motion to vacate the speakership, he kept pointing to the rules and Kevin McCarthy's broken promises. Those promises included originally uh, to separate omnibus spending bills out into individual spending packages so that members could vote ind individually on on what and how much to fund of the government. Um, and Johnson proposed stopgap funding until January fifteenth or April fifteenth, quote in order to ensure the Senate cannot jam the House with, an, with a Christmas omnibus. Um, and this is really uh, a, a, big, a big part of the fight, which is something that I, Susan, I, I think I've said before, is uh, I'm very sympathetic to, which is this idea that members really don't have the option to debate individual spending bills. They have, it's either yay or nay on the whole thing. Uh, and a lot of people are rightly frustrated about that. Uh, in April of 2022, Johnson voted for the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act. Uh, that was the first one. But he's voted against two subsequent appropriations bills for funding in Ukraine, uh, one in 2022, one just last month. He has posted on X signaling his support for funding Israel in their fight to take down Hamas, the terrorist group. Punchbowl News is reporting that they expect Johnson to get more leeway uh, from hardline conservatives than McCarthy did. So how do you expect the House to tackle the Ukraine and Israel funding issues and work on appropriations because it seems seems he wants to have this uh he he likes Ukraine uh, he likes Israel funding he doesn't like Ukraine funding it isn't really clear why and how you can maintain a consistent position uh there caddy what do you think i think i mean on the ukraine funding in a sense johnson reflects where american voters are right it's it when russia first invaded polls suggest both republican and democratic voters were in favor of america doing more to help ukraine um what the more was was never totally spelled out in those polling questions, but they were broadly in favor of American efforts to help Ukraine. Over the course of the year and a half since the invasion, or year and a half plus since the invasion, we've seen in both parties, but particularly in the Republican Party, some erosion of that support for helping Ukraine. And I think, you know, if you track Johnson and what he said publicly and how he's voted, it's pretty clear that he follows that voting trend. Now, it's possible uh, uh, some of the kind of 
Ukraine people that I've spoken to have suggested that actually the polls just reflect the fact that America did do more. And so people thought, well, we, we thought we should help. We thought we should give lots of money. Now we've given lots of money. That's enough. Um, you know, the numbers are actually, the total numbers, as we all know, are still very small, even as a percentage of the military budget. They're pretty tiny. Um, so I think that it, it's, you know, it's not a position that Democrats necessarily agree with. It's not a position that hawkish Republicans agree with. They still want to carry on funding. It's certainly not a position that, you know, America and its allies agree with. They still want to carry on supporting Ukraine. But it's not, there's not a sort of, I don't think that there's an inconsistency there just in terms of where Johnson is politically on this. Um, Obviously, he's going to be in favor of support for Israel. There isn't a single member of Congress that would come out not in favor of supporting Israel. Well, maybe there's one member of Congress that would come out, one or two members of on the Democratic side that might come out not in favor of supporting Israel robustly at the moment, but 95% of members of Congress are going to be in favor of supporting Israel at the moment. So I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily an inconsistency. Can I ask you for, to, to look at it through a different lens, and that is one of uh, strategic interest and security on the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, th- in terms of the United States and, and our allies as we are now um, involved in at least funding uh, two two wars, is is it possible to be consistent uh, looking at it through that lens and not a political one? How important is it that we that we continue to fund both Ukraine and Israel? Without American leadership, um, support for Ukraine erodes. Now, Europe, in my understanding, can pick up some of it. Um, but they can't pick up the leadership component and they can't even pick up all of the military side. In fact, there's a little bit of a misnomer, particularly amongst some sort of the more MAGA Republicans, that the Europeans haven't done very much. Actually, Europe has is now on a par with the United States. Europe writ large is on a par with the United States in terms of its funding um, for Ukraine. So they, so would it be, God, this you know, terrifying prospect, I think, in Kyiv. And um, there is no doubt that Zelensky and the people around Zelensky are watching what is happening in Washington incredibly carefully. And they're watching those poll numbers very carefully because they, they know what the cost would be if America were to pull back. One person that's really good on this, by the way, is a guy called Shashank Joshi, who's the defense editor of The Economist. And I was having a conversation with him recently about it. But he was pointing to this leadership component. He thinks that it's quite likely that the US will scale, with Republican pushing, will scale back its support for Ukraine um, on material side. The big question that he has, and that I think is an interesting one, is does Ukraine also pull back its support? Does uh, the US also pull back its support on the intelligence side? Because that's almost as important. The intelligence, um, the jamming, um, the coordination of, of intel and training, that kind of thing that America is pushing. If America can keep that, that would be very helpful. People on the Trump campaign that I've spoken to seem to think that uh, Trump would have no objection to keeping that kind of thing. It's the kind of, it's the top line number of ammunitions, um, you know, F-16s, that kind of thing that he's opposed to. Uh, uh, So I think it would be pretty, it's really interesting how the argument, and it's frustrating, I know, to people in the White House, and it's frustrating to people who support Ukraine. I don't think there's been a very good communications job with the American public on why supporting the war effort in Ukraine is in America's national security interests. I mean, clearly there hasn't been, a, and members of Congress and leadership that I've spoken to have 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 sort of, you know, said this. Um, that they need to do a better job in explaining, connecting the dots between a war in Ukraine and America's own national security. The the most convincing argument that I've heard, but it's not one that the Ukrainians like, is that Ukraine is doing America's um, war for it. I mean, that Ukraine is doing the job of seriously damaging the Russian army at a price that is incredibly cheap for America less than 5% of the defense budget without a single American getting hurt in the process. And how is that not a great investment for the United States? It's not an argument that the Ukrainians are particularly fond of, but I think there's a kind of growing sense amongst leadership that I speak to that that might be the best way to try and sell the Ukraine war to voters in the United States. And look, it's it's a pretty robust argument. 
Um, there you have this country in Europe fighting, you know, an adversary without a single American having to be on the ground, or at least on the ground in a way that puts them in harm's way. So I, I think the argument for Israel funding is, I mean, as we've seen how it's played out in this country, is a much easier one to make because there's so much more political support for it, that just Israel is, you know, America's key ally in the region. Yeah, I think Caddy brings up a really good point. I mean, I think Israel's kind of set. But on the communication front, I think when we're talking about Ukraine, and I mean Ukraine in the short term, when we talk about the funding that the administration is seeking now, there's, there's a couple of things that I think they're not doing well enough or that they can change the messaging on that could give Johnson a little bit of wiggle room to ask for this funding, which is... They're mostly asking funding, the Biden administration, to replenish what we have in the U.S. arsenal. We have been giving Ukraine the, 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 the ammunition, the, the, what they're using to make their fight has come out of our arsenal. It's old. It's old military equipment, frankly. So the funding is actually not to like say, here, Ukraine, here's some money kind of which basically more or less what we're doing with Israel. But with Ukraine, it's saying, let's let's build up our arsenal. We have depleted it a little bit, not dangerously so, but we can use this to have a newer arsenal for our, our, our security. So I think that argument needs to come out a little harder and at least give a little bit of a fig leaf for Johnson to say, I'm not funding Ukraine I'm funding the U.S. military budget, that that could give a little wiggle room. There's also one other idea that's being floated, and I'm not sure <laughs> if the U.S. can pull it off, but we have basically seized, I think it's over $300 billion from the Russian bank. We can take those seized dollars and give it to Ukraine. It's not U.S. money. So I'm not saying we take it off. We do it all. I mean, that is, you can argue that's us really getting directly into Russia's face and into the war, but it is a possibility. So I think they just need to message what they want to do with Ukraine, especially on that funding, is that it's not to fund Ukraine. It's to, it's to replenish our military supplies. It's not one quick point is that it's not made any easier by the fact that this offensive is not going particularly well, right? I mean, what Ukraine has captured, I think 0.25%, that's the figure of the territory that Russia took. Um, and if if the offensive was going better, it would be an easier sell, uh, I think, to the American public. And it's understandable that kind of people, I mean, it's just interesting going around the country. Uh, when I was traveling around the country for a documentary I made on Trump coming back, the number of times, not just Republicans, but Democrats, progressive Democrats, brought up the issue of funding for Ukraine unprompted. I wasn't out there asking about it, but people would say to me, why are we spending so much on Ukraine? I mean, you know, progressive Democrats would say, we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. We shouldn't be, we should be helping people here at home, uh, which, shows, which gives you kind of some sense of the hurdle, particularly when things aren't going that well. Though. Yeah. You know, before we leave this topic, um, the argument, Caddy, that you that you said is probably the most compelling one, uh, and that the Ukrainians don't like, is one that um, Molly McHugh, uh, a friend of the podcast, has been made several times here. Susan will be familiar with it, um, and I wonder if this idea that it's good, it, it's good when America leads in the world, and it's good that the Ukrainians are defeating an, an adversary, of the United States. I wonder if the 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 nature of russia as an adversary of the united states just isn't emotionally salient anymore um and and i wonder if that's the reason now granted we don't have uh, a grand orator in the white house right now nobody has really made that kind of um rousing call to support our democratic ally against an american enemy we haven't really had that case articulated in a in a in a in a good way, I don't think. But even if it were, I wonder if the idea of Russia as an enemy is Cold Warrior thinking that has not really survived uh, the, 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 to the moment that we're at now. 
uh, in people's imaginations. Do you think that's a, that either of you think that's a factor? Well, I think what's interesting is when we talk about protecting democracy globally and how important Ukraine is to that, I think in the U.S., you know, especially going to Caddy's point about who she interviewed, people associate now protecting democracy with a fight against Donald Trump. We talk about protecting d- democracy at home and abroad, but the at home has been what has mobilized, frankly, a lot of like MAGA Republicans. That's what has the base going. That is, I think, sometimes that word, how we use it and where we use it has has a different interpretation for, for people and what they hear. So when we talk about protecting democracy, people may say, oh, well, that's just, you know, we, we, we don't have to worry. We have our democracy and, and don't give me that stuff against Trump, even if we're talking about Ukraine. I mean, one, one thing that might change that, I mean, to bring Israel back into this conversation is the conflict in the Middle East at the moment because of the ties between Russia and Hamas um, and Russia's reluctance to criticize what Hamas was doing. You know, where was Sergei Lavrov this week? He was in Tehran. And there is some, you know, the growing ties between, I mean, we know that there are military ties between Iran and Russia when it comes to Ukraine, but this growing alliance between Russia and Iran, and I think Americans do recognize Iran as an enemy. So if the enemy of, you know, to the extent that a friend of my enemy is also my enemy, then I think, then, you know, there may be, there may be renewed scrutiny of Russia's intentions around the world. Susan, I had one other question I wanted to ask you about this uh, potential bipartisan uh, debt commission and uh, how that's likely to to, to play out. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it in plus, though. It's been nearly three weeks since Hamas launched heinous terrorist attacks in Israel, where over 1,400 Israeli civilians and military members were brutally murdered. Over 200 hostages including children and elderly people, are still being held by Hamas in Gaza. The terrorist group has so far released four hostages, and the oil-rich nation of Qatar has become a key intermediary in the negotiations over the remaining hostages. So there's one dimension that has, uh, in my view, gone underreported and perhaps not very widely understood about this crisis, and that is Qatar is actually central. They're a central player in it. The Qatari government is a longstanding backer and funder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, They have influence of the movement's Palestinian affiliate Hamas. Doha has provided a home for much of Hamas's exiled political bureau, including its de facto leader. Qatar has also been a major underwriter of Gaza's economy since Hamas took over control in 2007. Qatar has contributed hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas each year with the consent of the United States, Palestinian Authority, and Israel. And at the same time, Qatar has been a key U.S. partner in the Middle East. They are a designated major non-NATO ally of the United States. Uh, The major air force base in Doha hosted more than 10,000 American troops during the height of the wars in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and Syria. And they've allowed the Taliban to establish an office in Doha, and provided the Trump administration with a channel to negotiate with the terrorist organization. They facilitated the agreement to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan that the Trump administration agreed to and the Biden administration carried out, and we know how that ended. After the withdrawal, Qatar offered to process more Afghan refugees than any other Arab ally. So this is complicated, Caddy. Until late last week, I didn't know that the leaders of Hamas are in Doha. I don't think most people will know that Qatar has been funding Hamas, especially with the consent of the U.S. and Israel. So my first question, um, before we really get into the, the strategic implications here, why hasn't this been a more prominent part of our conversation about the conflict? So you're right. Uh, it is complicated. I did know that um, Hamas uh, had leadership based in Qatar and um, that actually with America's urging, when the Qatari leadership was forced out of Syria because of the war in Syria, it was um, the government of Qatar that gave them a base. Um, And 
the Americans at that point said, listen, we don't want them going to Iran. Uh, we think it would be better for national security and for our reach to them and to have at least some kind of channel open to them if they were in Doha, not in Tehran, and they ended up being in Doha. One point is, and I, you know, we got the, the, the sort of complications and sensitivities around all of this, but the money that Qatar gives to Gaza, um, it says does not go directly to Hamas. It goes to, um, uh, uh, goes to kind of health and education projects in Gaza. Now we can debate the the extent to which any money that goes into Gaza uh, doesn't go there with the with the say so of Hamas, but that's what the the Qataris would um, claim. But so there has been some American consensus, and this week uh, Israel's national security advisor also thanked the Qatari government for its role as a mediator. Um, I think. The scrutiny that starts getting placed at the moment, Qatar is getting kind of praise as you as from the Americans. It's getting praise even from the Israelis for its role, and it is kind of essential that the Qataris are playing this role. Uh, they've done it in other conflicts too. They organised for the release of four Ukrainian children um, from Russia to be reunited with their families. Recently, they've got this kind of weird negotiating role. They were involved in the negotiations with the Taliban. Um, under Donald Trump and then again under Joe Biden. So they've got they've got this role and the Americans kind of need them in the world in the awful world of realpolitik. The Qataris seem to be playing a useful role. I think there will be more scrutiny though, and particularly depending on what happens in Gaza um, and how this plays out. There are now the kinds of questions. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you're now asking these questions, right? Um, and uh, a journalist I know who interviewed uh, the Qatari, the Hamas's communications head in Doha gave them a very r- tough, you know, grilling over what they were doing, and the Qataris a tough grilling over what they were doing there. So, I don't think Qatar's role is simple in this. At the moment, it's getting the praise of various administrations, but if things, you know, depending on what happens in Gaza, depending on what happens in Israel and in that conflict, there's going to be more scrutiny on Qatar. Um, there's going to be more scrutiny, and I thought, you know. The point you raised to us before the show, Ron, about uh, Qatar, the amount of money that Qatar spends on lobbying and on American universities, there's going to be more scrutiny on that. Um, so it's a, it's I think it's a tricky moment for the for the state to see how it's going to play this one out and, and whether it continues having American support in the way that it has done. Yeah, um, I want to turn to that in in just a moment, especially about the education piece of this. But Susan, I'm wondering how how you think more attention to where the leaders of Hamas actually are now, uh, physically, as we're recording this, and as uh, Hamas is holding hostages in Gaza, um, how that might change perception of the crisis. As it as it stays with us, you know, it seems to be with us for quite a while here. Um, would that change perceptions of the crisis? It could. It could get really complicated, and it's a factor that, frankly, Israel doesn't want to see. Because once we start talking about Hamas and Qatar, and then we have to talk about Qatar and getting that spotlight and where it is other places, we're no longer talking about Hamas and Israel. And I think that, or I shouldn't say no longer, but there's another conversation to be had. And I think for Israel, seeing this as a very clear cut um, operation for them to eliminate Hamas, they don't want other voices in there, and at least from, from the press point of view. But you know, I didn't know much of what you said in the introduction either, Ron. I just didn't. And I I was shocked, but then thinking about it, Qatar has played a very interesting role in keeping its head, doing a lot of different things with a lot of different people and no one really paying attention to it and keeping its head down. It hasn't looked to be celebrity, if you will. It didn't look to become like Saudi Arabia was looking for that big change and, and, and bringing itself into a global, you know, perspective and, and, and going and making their PR tour, if you will, if you remember a few years ago. And now they're going to have a spotlight, like Hattie mentioned, on them. And that's going to be really, really tough because they will now everything will be looked at. But that relationship with Hamas, I mean, they are, they are 
in essence, allowing terrorist groups, and Hamas is not the first, to establish a home base in their country. A terror that the terrorist group that went out and said, kill the Jews, is living comfortably in Qatar. That is something that is going to be very hard to, to, to just kind of push aside. By the way, so is half of the Taliban leadership, right? Right. And has been living <laughs> yeah. there for a long time. Yeah. So this is not new. Um, it's just that they have been, look, p- part of it is the money. Um, and there are several European countries that have um, valuable gas deals with the Qataris. Um, and so they want to keep Qatar on side. They've been a kind of useful interlocutor on a whole range, as I said, of kind of international issues, Venezuela, Ukraine, Afghanistan. And so there's an interest in keeping them on side for that. Um, there's some thinking that, well, the Qataris are never going to let, I'm um, obviously it's a kind of police state, right? They're never going to let Hamas or Taliban do anything in their own country. So you park the leadership there where the Qataris can keep an eye on them. Although clearly, they, I don't think there's any suggestion Qatar knew what was going to happen. And I think that's that's the issue. Is look, we cat you sort of for all of the reasons that we stated, Qatar is useful to European and American governments. But if they if Hamas is able to pull off the kind of thing that it did in Israel without the Qataris knowing about it and then, you know, telling either the Israelis or America about it, um, then how useful are they? And uh, has, uh, you know, have, is that role actually still at the moment? Absolutely. There is nobody at the moment that is going to criticize Qatar because they want to get the hostages out. And Qatar is the best route for doing that. But over the long run, will there be more questions? Absolutely. Yeah, it's also worth noting, I'm remembering now that our, our friend Hagar Shamali, uh, who maybe you've run into at MSNBC yeah. uh, occasionally, pointed out uh, in the lead up to the World Cup that Qatar rented construction equipment from the Taliban. So they used the World Cup construction to pay the Taliban, essentially. And uh, so, ugh, this gets really hairy the more you look at it. Um, Caddy, one one more question on this front before we go, because we've been talking about the spotlight on Qatar, but what happens when Israel keeps saying they're working to take out Hamas, but the leaders of Hamas are not in the place they're attacking? And should we expect at this point that there is um, a covert operation to go get the leaders of Hamas? I don't know about that. I mean, I think if Hamas were to crumble and be decapitated in Gaza, which by the way, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you could, yes, you could take out Hamas in theory in Gaza, but what replaces it? Mm -hmm. I mean, you get back to the kind of old Don Rumsfeld thing, right? For every terrorist you kill, you create another 10. Um, And that was kind of the equation he always made. So yeah, you get something else by another name. Um, And uh, I think the leadership, and it's not, I don't know how many people there are. I know of I know that the the actual leader is there this week because um, the Iranian uh, security minister was in Qatar talking to him this week and they were photographed together. So he's definitely there. And I know that there are sort of, you know, a few others, but they are dependent on Hamas's power in Gaza. Gaza is the issue, not what's happening in Qatar. All right, let's turn to this education piece of the story Um, Shout out to the free press for this one. Over the last 25 years, Qatar has also pumped billions of dollars into America by spending money at major law firms, on major lobbying contracts, and for former senior government officials and at major universities and think tanks. Uh, Qatar has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to universities that created satellite campuses in Doha's education city, uh, including Virginia Commonwealth University, Cornell, Texas A&M. Carnegie Mellon, Georgetown, and Northwestern. And Northwestern, which has one of the best journalism schools in the United States, signed a memorandum of understanding with Al Jazeera to help train its reporters. Al Jazeera is a Qatari-funded news channel that has provided a platform from Hamas for Hamas uh, and other terrorist groups. Al Jazeera aired a weekly program hosted by a Muslim Brotherhood cleric that the ADL dubbed the Theologian of Terror. 
in the wake of these terrorist attacks, we've seen people in cities across the globe cheering for Hamas, and especially on university campuses, both students and professors and faculty. The Cornell professor who called the slaughter of innocent people, including babies and the elderly, exhilarating. We saw people chanting to uh, gas the Jews outside of the Sydney Opera House at a large anti-Israel, anti-Semitic rally. So Susan, I'm wondering from your perspective, and I don't think you and I have had the chance to talk about this sort of moral upside down that is revealing itself on the far left, uh, and especially at universities, um, but how do you think Qatar's influence on these universities and across the West have influenced the responses to the terrorist attack? Well, I think they discovered, I don't know, education washing way before the Saudis found out sports, what sports washing can do as a way of mm. cleaning up their reputations. And maybe that's why, I mean, think about it, education institutions, lobbyists, government, not focusing uh, on a country like Qatar, which certainly is much more significant than most people in the world, understand, or at least in this country, under, understand. They, they were playing our system. They know where to go. And the, the thing that that story highlights and scares me is on the education system and perhaps, like you said, why universities were slow to respond. I don't know that that's the case because of the funding. And it may be other countries from the Middle East that are doing a lot more funding as well that we don't care for. So they may realize that's what that's really what's allowing them to exist financially. And that, that's a lot of money that we're talking about. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars. But I think, again, now that this is starting to bubble up, the, the image of Qatar is going to greatly change in this country and it will start having a lot more PR problems. Caddy, there's one other piece um, before we start to wrap here, which is about information um, and how to know what's true. So I wanted to get your perspective on this. The other day I was uh, on Instagram, just as an example, I saw a post that uh, Palestinians were using actors to fake carnage and suffering to gain sympathy in the information war. Um, and we were going to talk about this on the show, but we couldn't find that video specifically. Maybe it had been taken down. Uh, the Associated Press has reported that there are videos circulating on social media sites claiming to show crisis actors in Gaza uh, that are actually taken from a 2017 news report about the film industry. We do know that there was an AI-generated image of an infant trapped under rubble that circulated widely, and people claimed it was a Palestinian child trapped in Gaza. Uh, to make all of this even more complicated, a a free AI image detector that's been covered by the New York Times and Wall Street Journal is currently identifying a photograph of a burnt corpse of a baby killed by Hamas as AI. However, one of the world's leading experts on digitally manipulated images uh, told 404 Media that there's no sign that the image was created by AI. So now we're in a position where the tools designed to detect AI are being used to discredit the real horrors of war, um, which is sort of upside down what you might expect. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Authority has claimed 6,500 people have been killed in Israeli attacks. But on Wednesday, President Biden said that he had no confidence in those numbers. He, he, he did say that he's, uh, he's sure innocents have been killed. So when there's so much uncertainty about what we're seeing and whether it's fake or whether it's real, as a journalist, how do you sift through that information to make a call? and? maybe more broadly, what has your reaction been to the way uh, our trusted journalistic institutions have, have covered the crisis so far? Um, look, it's really hard. And um, we, at the BBC, we have somebody called a, a misinformation and disinformation correspondent, and she has done a, you know, as good a job as anyone can in trying to sift through the amount of disinformation, misinformation that's out there. And I should say that there is misinformation on both sides. Um, you know, there are videos being put out by pro-Israeli groups that purport to show um, Palestinians jumping off stretchers saying, look, this shows that they're not actually, uh, haven't actually been wounded. And actually it was video that 
had been put out by some Israeli groups showing that had come from, you know, acting scenes in movies. So I think we have to be careful to say that this is happening not just on the Hamas side, but on on pro-Israeli groups as well. And to be to try a, as hard as we can to go to the source and to question every single piece of video going forward that comes into your Twitter feed, X feed, or your Instagram feed. Because what was that study that came up this week suggesting that fairly soon 90% of what we see on the internet will be fake? We won't be able to believe any of it. And in a situation where there is a real vested interest in putting out misinformation, and by the way, not all of this misinformation is being put out by even actors on the ground. Some of it will be being put out by groups in China and by groups in Russia and groups in other countries that just want to meddle in this. We know that that is happening as well. Um, So the war over information, and the biggest example of this is that, um, you know, the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was initially reported as an Israeli strike. Then um, the Americans and the Israelis said, no, actually, it wasn't an Israeli strike. It was a Palestinian rocket that misfired. Now, the latest thinking as of this morning and last night is that we don't know, that the people have trawled through all of the video and the analysis. And the truth is, we can't say where that strike come from, came from. But within minutes, it's labeled as one side or another, which with huge important consequences and potentially lives at stake in countries around the world. And we saw the explosion of fury in the Middle East, even though this may well not have been an Israeli strike. We don't know whether it was an Israeli rocket that it, or part of an Iron Dome system that may have misfired and exploded over the hospital. That's one possible thinking. But for news organizations, I think the onus is on us to really be careful about our headlines because it's the headlines that tell the first story and that people look at and where we jump to and we want to get things quickly and to have a certain amount of editorial protocols that just keep saying, we don't know. We, you know, if, if we don't know, we don't know. And we have to be transparent with our audiences about that and not rushing to put things down in print or on television or on podcasts or on radio when you don't know what the facts are. I I cannot say how important it is because so many news organizations got headlines wrong in this and and literally lives can be at stake as a result of it. And I think it's a very salutary reminder to all of us, but to us as news consumers, just to be very careful about what we read and to realize that people are coming into this conflict with incredibly strong points of view. Um, from both sides and very intense emotions on both sides and to just try and and factor that filter into what you're reading and and go keep going. And that's why I mentioned this guy, Shashank Joshu, I think at The Economist is really good. Just keep going to people you can trust and rely on and just forget, you know, 90% of the crap that's out there. Yeah. And remember the power of confirmation bias on your own part yes. and on the part of others. Yeah. 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 By the way, one other thing I've seen that Harari, um, Yuval Harari's article, I don't, I think you sent it to us. I had read it earlier this week too. I thought that was a really good, on this whole thing of, um, on the left in the United States and he's kind of critiquing the left in the United States and Europe for abandoning the left in, uh, Israel over this attack. But he, he, he made a, in the letter that Yuval signed, um, as part of a group, he made this really good point, which is that we have to, in this moment, be able to hold multiple thoughts and empathies in our head. I mean, if not, we've lost our humanity. We have to be able to say, as he does, that there is no contradiction between, you know, staunchly opposing Israel's subjugation, occupation of Palestinians and unequivocally, I think his word was, condemning brutal attacks of violence against innocent civilians. And that was kind of, I think that's where we have to all come to this from. I think that's right. Susan, any other thoughts on this you know, listeners will probably be familiar or remember um, what uh, Nina Schick, who's a, an expert uh, in London on synthetic media, deepfakes, calls the liar's dividend, which is especially with synthetic media, um, the the lie obviously spreads faster almost always than any truth or correction that could possibly, you know, follow it. Um, so I wonder how you think about that in terms of um, persuasion, public opinion, and the information war. That's that's a huge component of this crisis. 
Yeah, I, it's so much more difficult now because you could always rely on journalistic standards. Like you knew if you were watching a news broadcast, you knew, you knew that journalists had to follow these protocols before they reported this information. And I would say the facts, if you will. So not only do you, those standards now really do not exist across the board, um, yes, big reputable news organizations hold by them, but they also have to adapt. And I thought what Caddy said was really important. You'd never hear a big news organization say, we don't, we do not know here, you know, but this is the information that we have. And that's not what's supposed, that's not what's how news is supposed to be reported with the sense of, we don't know. You're supposed to only report what you do know. And so I think that the, the standards within the journalism journalistic community have to be also revised to to talk about and really say like this is acceptable now to say we don't know or we only ha- we have this information from Hamas say where the information is from but it cannot be confirmed but overall. Th- <laughs> We joked around before we got on the podcast about can't we just turn off the internet? And sometimes <laughs> we really do need to turn it off and really just go back to, to basics of how you process information. And it's just so easy now to get lost. And the other thing is it's it's bias confirmation. People don't want to, whatever your side is, you think your side is, you can find information in quote the press. So it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. I think the nut of the problem here is that these standards of journalism that have stood for so long now find themselves at direct odds with the corrosive incentives of the, the, the business model of news, which is to get it fast and get it out there and that has that has trumped getting it right. And hopefully get it right. Yeah. I was gonna, they hope yeah. they get it right. By the way, and the business model of the internet, right? Like you, right. Like you just yeah, said, yeah. Ron, the lie spreads faster because the lie is incendiary and gets more clicks. Yep. Uh, okay, we're not gonna solve that one today. <laughs> but now that now that we're up to speed. We got another we got another few minutes. Versions. We can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh let's turn to what we're um what watch what we're watching. Caddy, what what stories are on your mind? Uh, I mean, obviously the Middle East watching a, a, a ton of that. And I am really interested in uh, there is, you know, this is being reported in such different ways. I'm very conscious of that around the Middle East. It's being different. It's being reported differently in Europe from how it's being different reported in America. I mean, I've just come back from being in London for a week, and the perception in London is different um, from the perception in the United States. And that, you know, you may think that's right or wrong, but it's going to have an impact on Israel's decisions and in what, on what happens in Gaza because uh, Israel knows that it has to kind of try and keep the support of, of other countries. But it's a really interesting moment for countries like China and Russia and how they respond to this and how they are also trying to wage a war of information and public diplomacy. Um, to bring people over to their point of view when it comes to this. And we know that China is trying to be a kind of leader of the global South. And this is a moment that is slightly splitting, as Ukraine has done, is splitting the kind of the West writ large from the global South under kind of China's leadership. And it, it, it's, I have, I mean, I got I hate, I, I don't want to be, I want to be the sum of, you know, Susan's optimism here, but I have <laughs> rarely heard people sound so grim about how, about national security issues, both in the Middle East and in Ukraine, but particularly in the Middle East. This is bad. And, and how this, and I have, I have yet to hear a scenario about how this turns out well. Yeah. In one of the articles, maybe we sent uh, in advance of today or not, I don't know, but there was an Axios write-up of just how a, a peek behind the curtain of the, you know, the national security, uh, apparatus in the United States and just how everyone is is concerned about the historic level of danger that we're facing. That's that's what the chatter is like behind the Yeah, and people curtain. get tired, so you know. I mean, there are not very many people running national security in the White House and they have a lot on their plates and when people get tired they start making mistakes and giving bad advice. 
That's important to remember. Susan, (laughs) they're people. Yeah, they're people. Susan, you have some sunshine? Um, (laughs) No. (laughs) I am switching from international to domestic, if that's okay. All right. Excellent. Um, And and, um, lives are not, well, let me, lives are online, actually, based on what I just read. First, tell us about the lawyers. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I, what, remember, uh, everyone will remember at the top of the show, I, I referenced Susan's predictive powers that she always brings to this look ahead segment. And uh, today, this week is no exception. Do you want to reprise your uh, chatter from X number of months ago? Well, when they were about to come down with the indictment in Georgia, we had just fin- we were just doing a show right around that time. And I said, watch the lawyers. The lawyers are the ones to watch in all of this. And I thought maybe Rudy would be the first to flip because I know he's scared. But now I think he still may flip because three lawyers in a week basically said, took guilty pleas in the Georgia case against um, Donald Trump and election fraud. So yeah, there's that. Now, this is a longer look ahead, but it's also something I'm watching really because it's New York, because that's where I am. But just, it's shocking. This headline, New York mayor weighs giving migrants tents. That's how New York City is going to start housing the migrant population. Now let's keep in mind, New York is not a border state, except for Canada, yes, but we don't have a problem with the Canadians coming in. The problem is, is that they're coming in from Another border state of Texas, we have a governor who just decided it's okay to send people anywhere he wants to make a political point. But this, the migrant crisis in New York is huge. And it is spilling out into the political scene, not just locally, because a couple of Republicans may win city council races over this issue. But I think that immigration could very well become a significant suburban issue for 2024. And the reason I I say that Emerson College did a survey this month and it said that by 19% northeast uh the northeast considered immigration a tremendous problem. That's up 6 points from last month. That's a lot. And I I think what we're starting to see again similar to the way crime played out in 2022, when you see the headlines of a violent crime on the subways, and then you hear the government official saying, but crime's at an all-time low, people don't react to that. They react to what they see, what they hear. And in New York City, um, they're starting to ask, well, they have been asking the governor for relief. And that relief means putting migrants in suburban towns. So that is what folks around New York City are seeing, uh, even upstate New York. And I think that's spilling into, that will spill into a national dialogue um, when it comes to migrants. Also, I'd just like to highlight, if anyone knows what San Francisco looks like with their tent cities, it's frightening. And I think when you hear that New York is starting to, well, permits are not being sought for building. And now we hear about tent cities. I think that it's an indication that New York is going to be into really tough times. Okay, that was not optimistic, yeah. Susan. I feel kind of cheated. <laughs> that was not. Because I was, I was, uh. I was thought, you know, I was going to get a little bit. Okay, can I? Okay, I'll give you a short. Okay, I'll give you a short look ahead. I can make it either way. I can go either way on this, but I'm going to say. In New York City this weekend, it's going to be 70 degrees, 70 plus degrees. The bad side is it's climate change, but the good side is everyone's going to have a nice weekend, which we haven't had in three weeks. Yeah. So the weather in D.C., it is 80 degrees today in D.C., which I know today. is terrible news, but let's face it, is also kind of good news. Okay, I have one tiny little thing. I'm not a predictor yeah. at all, but... Watch Virginia. I spend most of, I spend about half my week in Virginia driving around some of the key, and I'm in some of the key constituencies that are um, really in play and will change the makeup of Virginia and whether Democrats take back the state legislature at the moment they hold the Senate, but they don't hold the House. um, And it's like two seats either, two seats either side. And 
the amount, the number of, and this is purely anecdotal, the number of yard signs that have been up in Virginia for at least a month suggests to me that there's a lot of enthusiasm. And there's just, and I, I, I watch Virginia for turnout because if we have a, you know, yeah, democracy is going to hell and we're all worried about it, but my God, are people on the upside, people are motivated and they are voting. And I think Virginia is going to give us a good predictor of whether we're going to have high turnout next year and whether people are motivated. And it's going to be a big predictor of abortion because um, the governor, Glenn Youngkin, wants to enforce a six-week abortion ban, which would make Virginia take Virginia off the table in the South. At the moment, Virginia is the last state in the South that uh, women can come to um, for uh, to have abortions after six weeks. So watch Virginia, but I think there's going to, I think there's going to be very high turnout and I'm seeing a ton of kind of yard signs and enthusiasm around the election. That was sort of good. good um, That's a a good way of spinning bad news as good news, (laughs) like the weather. (laughs) All right, ladies, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to talk about some startling poll numbers I mentioned uh, that show an erosion of support for democracy and um, an increasing appetite for political violence. Uh, where can everybody find you, follow your work on the internet? Caddy, where do you point them to? Um, come to knshipman.com for all of my work on um, The Power Code um, and my book with Claire Shipman. Uh, you can find me on... Uh, on Instagram uh, at catty.b.k and I'm on Twitter. Amazing. The t- platform now known as X. Are we still calling it Twitter? We just don't uh, know I, what the I don't know. I don't, how do you say is. X to X? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's... I don't know. I don't know. Susan, uh-huh. where are you at? I'm at that place that's X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, Del Percio S. And I really don't post that much anymore. So I encourage your listeners to go to Caddy's site and check out the power code. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.